please take your Bibles with me, if you would, and open to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. The title of the message this morning is The Tragic Fallout, Corrupted Passions. And I want to have you stand to your feet as we read Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, as we read those words together as a church family, I I don't need to tell you that these two verses are emotionally charged and are fraught with controversy, especially in in a culture that is growing more and more tolerant to same-sex marriage and the homosexual lifestyle. I want to remind you of something that took place. It's a day I will never forget. I'm sure it's a day you will never forget. And it occurred on June the 29th, 2015. And I'll never forget hearing the news. And I said to myself and to several people that we woke up in a different nation. Because in a historic move, the Supreme Court rendered a decision by a vote of five to four which made same-sex marriage a legal right for all Americans. Frankly, I didn't think I would ever live to see the day when this would take place. Now, the dilemma that we face as a nation, which comes as a result of the Supreme Court decision, is really nothing new. It's nothing that should shock us or surprise us. Because the people of God have faced such seasons of adversity and trial and persecution and compromise throughout redemptive history. In Judges Judges chapter 21, we learn this, that the people of God lived among idol worshipers. And if you recall that very last verse of Judges chapter 21, it says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does that not sound like the United States of America right now? God's people also lived under the thumb of Nebuchadnezzar, who mandated the worship of a pagan deity. God's people were taken into captivity by rival nations who were characterized as as cruel and ruthless. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6. And so now move with me from the Supreme Court to another kind of a court, the court of public opinion. And I think you'll agree that the shift among Americans concerning matters that pertain to what we know now as LGBT is absolutely mammoth. You see, there is a day, even in our country, where the vast majority of Americans viewed homosexuality as a sin. That has totally changed. It has totally changed. Today, 
83% say that such intimate relationships should be legal. Only 2% had no opinion, according to a recent Gallup poll. In 1996, for example, if asked, if first asked Americans if they supported same-sex marriage, 27% said yes. 27%. This year, 2019... 27% increased to 63%. And so we have the Supreme Court decision. That's one thing. But maybe even more important is we have the court of public opinion. And we're going to find that the, the court of public opinion is radically different than what we discover in God's word. It is probably no surprise to most of you that Christ Fellowship is a church that is grounded securely in sacred scripture. In fact, the first major heading of our statement of faith for members is entitled Scripture Alone or Sola Scriptura, which means the Bible alone. And the first statement reads as follows. We believe the Bible is God's absolute truth for all people, for all times. It is our final authority for discerning truth. That is to say, when we search for knowledge, where do we turn? We turn to the word of God. When we are in need of wisdom, we, we turn to scripture. When we seek to understand who God is and what he is like and how he deals with people, both converted and unconverted, we turn to scripture. When we need peace for our troubled souls, we turn to to sacred scripture. And when we are confronted with these kinds of controversial hot button issues like homosexuality and same sex marriage, we turn to sacred scripture. You see, my challenge and our challenge together is that we are not driven by emotion, we are not driven by culture, we are not driven by the court of public opinion. We are driven by the unshakable truth that emerges in the Word of God. You see, our feelings should never dictate our deeply held beliefs, but I'm afraid that as I look around at the post-Christian age that we're living in, even professing followers of Jesus Christ are doing just that. And so we should never be swayed by the media. We we refuse to cave in to the pressure both from within and from without. We do not succumb to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. Rather, we embrace, we believe in, and we trust the word of God. Amen? One popular preacher who will remain nameless, and he is a preacher who... My guess would be 90% of you have heard of him. He is a well-known pastor. He has written several books. He, he pastors a church of thousands of people. In recent days, he uttered these words. Quote, I stopped using specific language. I quit saying the Bible says or the Bible teaches or the word of God says or the word of God says. God teaches. This was not a change in belief or theology for me. This was simply a change in approach to talking about the Bible, end quote. 
Now, in contrast to this preacher, Wayne Grudem says this, the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Kevin DeYoung says submission to the Scriptures is submission to God. Rebellion against the Scriptures is rebellion against God. That is to say, when you look at a text and you say, I don't like it, I don't believe it, I won't do it, it's as if you are shaking your fist at a holy God. It's that serious. And so may I encourage you, much to the chagrin of the pastor I quoted a moment ago, may I encourage you to get in the habit of saying, the Bible says. Not, I believe, but the Bible says. The Bible teaches, because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. It's, it's very popular in, in evangelical subculture to hear people uttering something like this. I'm just waiting to hear a word from the Lord. May I ask just a, a question? How many of you would love to hear a word from the Lord today? Anyone? How many of you have your Bibles open? There you go. You have a word from the Lord. And so we don't wait for subjective experiences. We don't wait for a subtle tap on the shoulder. We don't wait for that radio preacher to to give us that word from the Lord. What do we do? We open the book and we read from Genesis to Revelation. Do you want a word from the Lord? We read the sacred text. And so when the Bible speaks, God speaks to his people. And so with that in mind, may I, I pray and may we ask God to give us strength and wisdom as we approach this very important passage. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is immutable. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is abundantly clear. It paints a vivid portrait of who you are and what you expect from your creatures. Lord, I pray that we would come to this passage this morning with hearts that are ready to receive the word of God. I pray that there may even be a a surprise for someone this morning that as they anticipate a message that says uh, not to do certain things, and surely that will be a portion of the message, that they would hear something positive, that they would hear a course of action that they might take as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so please give me wisdom. Please help me to strike the the proper tone. Lord, as I have uh, friends who have embraced the sin of homosexuality, friends that I love a great deal, and I know that many of us are in that place, whether it's a, a friend or a relative or a parent or a grandparent, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to have a a love for them, that you would enable us to show show the the love of Christ to people who need to see the gospel lived out before their very eyes. We trust you to do mighty things today in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go. Last week, we looked at a key word as a very tiny word. If you want to look with me to review, 
at Romans chapter 1, verse 24. And the very first word in that passage is the word therefore. When we see that word, we are in the habit of asking, what is it therefore? And when we ask that very important question, we discovered what it was there for in verses 20 to 23. Here's what Paul says. For his invisible attributes, that is the invisible attributes of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And so we pose this question, how does the creature respond to the divine disclosure, the supernatural revelation of God? And the answer is found once again in verses 21 to 23. There's five things that occur. Their response involves this. They fail to honor God as God. Verse 21. They failed to give thanks to God. Verse 21. They failed to think thoughts after God, verse 21. They failed to have a heart for God, verse 21. And then in verses 22 and 23, Paul says, they failed to worship God as he demands. And so we learn this, that each and every fallen creature stands guilty before a holy God. And so here's what we did. Last week, we discovered the first of three tragic fallouts. These guilty creatures, we learn that fallout number one, tragic fallout number one, is that they are corrupted people. Verses 24 and 25, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed Forever. Amen. And so the reason that God gave them up is twofold. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks. It's this subtle inversion or or demolition rather of the creator creature distinction. Now look with me at the second tragic fallout. We move from these guilty creatures who are corrupted people to the second tragic fallout, which is corrupted passions. Corrupted passions. Look once again at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged. That should be a, a, a key word in your mind. Their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now here's something that's interesting. The, the opening words of verse 26 in the English Standard Translation, which many of you have, most of you have, and also the New American Standard is translated as follows. For this reason. Do you see that? Verse 26. For this reason. I want to make a, a critical observation and point out so that you will know that the Greek word that is translated for this reason is a similar term 
to the word we see in verse 24. What's the very first word in verse 24? You see it? Therefore. Therefore. It's as if you could say in verse 26, it's another therefore. It's similar for this reason. In other words, everything now that we will uncover in the rest of Romans chapter 1 comes as a result of creaturely rebellion. And that's something I want to anchor in your minds. All of these tragic fallouts, we're going to see three. These tragic fallouts come as a result of creaturely rebellion. The refusal of the creature to worship God as God. And so in order to unpack the the corrupted passions that Paul describes, I want you to see three headings. And I'll give those to you in advance to allow you to see really the, the texture of the message today. I want you to see the price for the rebellion, first of all. Then I want you to see the profile of the rebellion. And then finally, we'll conclude with the penalty for their rebellion. First of all, the price for their rebellion. Before we look at this, may I say it, it is a serious price. It is a heavy price price. These are sober, sober realities. And so here's the price, and it it should sound familiar to you. Verse 26, for this reason, or therefore, God gave them up. Does that sound familiar? That's what we looked at in great great detail last week in verse 24. It comes from, it is translated, the phrase gave them up comes from this Greek word paradidomai, And we looked at it last week once again. It means to deliver someone up. It means to surrender someone. It means to hand them over. That's paradidomai. And there are five features of paradidomai that I want to review with you that apply in this passage as well as the passage last week. When God hands someone over, this is a serious thing. And there are five features. Number one, it is voluntary. God voluntarily hands them over. Number two, It is sovereign. It is sovereign. This is not merely a passive surrendering of God. That is, God doesn't merely give in to the whims of the fallen creature. When God gave them up, as he did in verse 24 and also in verse 26. By the way, just for your information, verse 28. If you would drop down to our text next week, you see what happens. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. And so this is according to God's sovereign pleasure. Third, it is an act of divine permission. You say, what does that mean? These people who are living in a way that that does not honor the living God, God gives them divine permission to move in that direction. It's a direction that... That he simply can't tolerate, but he gives them permission to do it. Number four, it's a withholding of divine protection. It's a withholding of divine protection. When I was a youth pastor, I used to share with students from time to time that when you walk out of the will of the Lord, it's just as relevant to adults as well. But when you're out of step with the Holy Spirit, when you're out of step with the word of God, young people, when you rebel against parental authority... You're placing yourself in this position where you're, you move outside the umbrella of divine protection. Because you want to do it your way. 
There's a fifth feature of paradidomai, and it's probably the most serious. It is an act of divine judgment. It is a formal surrendering of someone to another domain. And so God gives them up. He, he gives them over to another domain. It is not the domain of the kingdom of God. It is the domain of the kingdom of Diabolos, the kingdom of the devil. And so this is the penalty for their perversions. That is, it's the penalty of what we're calling their corrupt passions. But we have yet to see what God gives them up to. This leads us to really the, the very essence of this message. That is the profile of their rebellion. The profile of their rebellion. And you see it beginning in verse 26. And there are two very important anchors here I want you to see. Number one, they are, as we profile them, we did this last week as well, they are a people of dishonorable passions. Do you see it in verse 26? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. That word dishonorable comes from a Greek word that means a state of shame or disgrace. A state of shame or disgrace. I think you will agree with me that we are living in a culture now where psychology and counseling has just gone through the roof. And there are some things that are very good about that. But one thing that greatly concerns me is that in the modern counseling movement, not only outside the church, but also within the church, here's what the counselee is told over and over and over again. You shouldn't feel shame about anything. You shouldn't have any guilt about anything. Well, we know this. Without shame or without guilt, the gospel is of no use to you. Does that make sense? And so when you counsel with someone who is involved in whatever sin it might be, whether it's the sin that we're looking at in verses 26 and 27 or any other garden variety of sin, as the counselor, and by the way, if you're a Christ follower, you are, as Jay Adams once said, competent to counsel. Do you believe that? You don't need to be certified. You are competent to counsel if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I go so far to say this, young people, Kyle, you are competent to counsel. You love the word of God. If you love the word of God and you're a follower of Jesus and you see someone who needs strength and encouragement or wisdom or admonishment or equipping, you are competent to move into their lives and show them truths from the word of God. And if someone is living in habitual sin, they need to be told, you should feel guilty. You are committing cosmic treason against a holy God. There should be profound shame in your life. Well, here's what Paul says. These are dishonorable people. People who are living lives of shame and disgrace. But he doesn't end there. He says that they're a people of dishonorable passions. Now, when you hear what passions mean and you link it together with dishonorable, you see the grim picture. You'll see really the tragic fallout of corrupt passions. The word passions comes from the Greek term uh, pathos, which means a strong feeling or emotion, but more so it means lustful passion. Now, 
put together dishonorable feeling of shame or guilt and lustful passions. That is what the fallen creature in this passage is committed to. And we see it every day in our culture. Hold your finger in Romans 1. I want you to look with me at at two passages. And the first passage is in Colossians chapter 3. And if you can make your way to Colossians chapter 3 and also go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll do this together. Colossians chapter 3 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You have heard it said in our society that that Jesus, that the apostles, that the letters uh, that, that, that surface in sacred scripture, they never address the sin of homosexuality. I have heard that over and over again. And I think that we've seen that roundly refuted in our passage to begin with this morning. But I want you to see the approach that the word of God has on such a lifestyle. Look first at Colossians 3 verse 5. Paul says this, put to death. That's from the word to mortify. If you have the King James, you'll see the translation mortify. Therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity. And here's our word in Romans chapter 1 verse 26, passion. Paul says, put passion to death, put evil desire to death, put covetousness to death, which is idolatry. This is what the word of God says about these kinds of sins. Now, also look at First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. You have like, likely heard this from me in the past. Have you ever had a desire to know what the will of God is for you? It's, it's for years and years and years. It's a popular subject. How do I discern the will of the Lord? And here's the answer. Verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is how I would summarize these two verses along with Romans chapter 1, Verses 26 and 27. I'm going to say this this is probably the most intense theological statement you've ever heard in your life. There is no wiggle room here. There's no wiggle room. There's no no room to compromise. There, There is no ambiguity. You see, the Bible is is clear on this matter. And I would go so far to say it like this: it's not even a debatable matter. But what we find is that the rebellious creature persists in his or her commitment to carrying out what Paul refers to as living out a life of dishonorable passions. Go back to Romans chapter 1, please. We see that first sentence, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
And there's another transition word that occurs next. It's the word for. And the word for helps to explain what, what Paul has in mind. And what he has in mind is yet another pagan exchange. We have already witnessed the first pagan exchange where the creature exchanged the glory of the immortal God in verse 23 for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And we have also witnessed how the sinful creature in verse 25 exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. But now Paul moves forward. And we face the pagan exchange in the sexual arena. And here is the key. This pagan exchange and every pagan exchange always has consequences. Every pagan exchange has consequences. We learned last week that there are at least three effects of believing the lie. Or three effects for the pagan Exchange. That is, it affects, number one, our theology. And you will see that in verses 26 and 27. When this pagan exchange takes place, if you have friends or relatives, as I do, who make the pagan exchange, all of a sudden, they, the way they perceive God is totally different. What happens is an idol is concocted in the mind of the person making the pagan exchange. There's a second effect. It not only affects our theology, what we believe about God, it affects our spirituality. That is how we worship God. And then finally, it affects our behavior, namely our sexual behavior. And so look carefully with me at this pagan exchange. Here's what Paul says. He says that they twisted God's original design for sexuality. There are two examples, and you see it respectively in verses 26 and 27. First, example number one, the women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. May I remind you that that word for exchange is simply the word that you could translate it as substitute. What Paul is saying is this, these women are living in such a way that God never intended. They are living in such a way that God never designed. They are out of sync with God's intended purposes. It is important to see that this exchange that Paul describes then is equated, and you'll see and link it together, it's equated with, back in verse 26, at the beginning of verse 26, with dishonorable passions. That is, this pagan exchange is intimately tied to a lifestyle of dishonorable passions. And for this reason, what does God do? He gives them up. Example number two. We move from women to men. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. May I make a, a comment as a footnote? Is something that is not immediately apparent and many of us may just slip by without noticing it, but it's of paramount importance Verse 26 addresses whom? Someone just yell it out. Women. Verse 27 addresses whom? Men. Do we see a distinction between women and men? It's probably one of the most 
basic and fundamental theological realities in all of Scripture. But are you noticing what's taking place in our culture? Is the distinction between men and women is slowly being erased. Are you familiar with this? I talked to someone a few weeks ago who applied for a job. And this woman told me that under gender, I should have had her prove it because I don't know if I even believe it. She said there were nine categories. I said, nine categories? Are you kidding me? There's only two categories for gender. Boy, girl, men, women. Yet our culture wants to to blur these gender lines. And you'll recall that the result of this has profound theological consequences, profound spiritual consequences, profound consequences in the sexual arena. Here are these men engaged or in these, these relations that are contrary to God's word. And like the women above, these men make a pagan exchange. They abandoned or literally gave up natural relations with women. And Paul describes this pagan exchange and shows how they pursued a reckless path. We won't go into great detail. He says this, they were consumed with passion for one another and they committed shameful acts with one another. As I studied this passage soberly and and humbly and my heart grieving as I think of my friends who embrace the homosexual lifestyle, the thought occurred to me. And I hope it's a thought that occurs to you as well. Who is it who makes the final decision of what is contrary to natural? Back in verse 26, for the women exchange natural relations. Who is it who decides what the rules are? Who is it who delineates what natural is? And the answer is that the word of God establishes God's design for marriage between one man and one woman. I want to share only a couple of highlights here. I have several things I wish I could share, but there are two highlights. And have you turn back with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And these are some highlights that I lifted out of Kevin DeYoung's excellent book, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? I commend it to you. It is a a wonderful, gracious, truthful book. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And of course, as you know, there was no shame at this point in redemptive history because the sin had not yet been committed. And so the nature of the one flesh union presupposes two people of opposite sex, male and female. And then go over to Matthew chapter 19. And here is the section of scripture that I read in every ceremony that I have the privilege of officiating. You know it very well, Matthew chapter 19, beginning of verse 4, where Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, not nine categories, 
two categories, male and female. And he said, therefore, a man, quoting from Genesis 2, shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Move with me now from the profile of their rebellion to the penalty for their rebellion. And I have to say, I have to admit to you in Romans chapter 1, something took me by surprise, something that I had never really noticed before. And it is most likely because of the approach my wife and I take in biblical counseling. And she probably won't chuckle under her breath when I say this. She'll be grieved the number of times we have counseled a young couple when we hear something like this. I just made a mistake. I just made a mistake. And I remember the first time it happened, my wife looked at our friend and said, Sir, you did not commit a mistake. You committed a grievous sin before a holy God. And so you'll know why I'm surprised when we look at verse 27. These men were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I thought, I, I, I don't question Paul, but I scratched my head and thought, Paul, error? It made me think of that word mistake, but he said they received the due penalty for their error. And so I look up the Greek word. The translation of the Greek word is perversion. Perversion. They received the due penalty for their perversion. The price they pay, the penalty they pay is that God, and we come full circle now, God gives them up to dishonorable passions. And looking forward in the book of Romans, the penalty we will see is Ultimately, death, spiritual death, eternal death, where we are punished for all eternity in the lake of fire for unbelief and turning away from the living God. And so the truth point, it's not on the screen this morning, but the truth point is this, the, the tragic fallout for rebellious creatures who refuse to bow the knee to the Lord is corrupted passions. This is the bold truth. This is the biblical reality. And then there was another shift in my thinking as I wrote down this truth point. And I want to share just as your pastor some of the thoughts that I had. I am convinced, and I'm speaking not of necessarily the broad sweep of evangelicalism, although it probably includes that, but I'm thinking here at Christ Fellowship. I'm thinking that many in our church family do embrace this biblical reality. That we accept the teaching in verse 26 and 27. That we affirm with the Apostle Paul and with Jesus and with the Apostles and with the Word of God that homosexuality is a grievous sin before a holy God. And so you say, where is this going to go? While I'm convinced that we accept at our church what the teaching of Scripture is, I'm not sure 
that we have been adequately taught or understand how to reach out to people who have corrupt passions. And the biographical sketch of my own life, I shared a little bit of that last week. As I shared about my friend, who I went to Multnomah with, a, a card-carrying homosexual. I remember seeing his picture, and I'd be angry because he knows better. And God changed my heart, and I moved from anger to profound compassion. Profound sadness and grieving over the sin of homosexuality. And so I don't believe that we have been taught or really know how to reach out to people who have embraced this sin or these sins or fall under the category of being a people of corrupt passions. Moreover, I fear that the church has not always responded in a way that is either biblical or loving. And so as we close this morning, I want to leave you with a list. It's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure there are many more things that we could discover. But I want to leave you with three principles for living in a post-Christian world. And so here we are. If I had it my way, we would go back to the 17th century. If I had it my way, I would just prefer to be in a, a white church with a steeple where we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday for prayer meeting, and a lot of other times. And the church would be the, the very center of the community. Some of you are old enough to remember that, that, that those were the good old days. Where if someone needed an answer, you come to church. If someone needed peace, you came to church. If someone needed to know who God was like, you came to church. Those days are over. Because now we find ourselves in a post-Christian world and things are not getting any better. And so I want to leave you with three principles that I trust will encourage you, especially if you have family members or friends who are in any way involved with the homosexual community. Number one, make a crucial commitment. And that crucial commitment, and this is foundational, is we choose to uphold the biblical portrait of marriage. As I drew this principle out, it's a very basic principle, one that won't surprise any of you. I thought of something that happened to me in the eighth grade. Here is a, a classroom of about 40 eighth grade boys and girls. And my health teacher stood at the front of the class and he said, Now, boys and girls, I have a question for you. We're going to have some fun with this, we're going to do a little exercise. There are two views that will be represented in our room. And I want those of you who believe in abortion on demand to go to this side of the room. And I want those of you who refuse to believe in abortion on demand to go to that side of the room. On three, go. One, two, three. Without even thinking, I'm over here. My best friend, who is a Roman Catholic, came with me and stood and I said to my friend, John, looks like we're the only ones because everyone else went to that side. So when we talk about upholding the biblical portrait of marriage, you're going to find that you might be standing alone in your workplace. You might be standing alone in your family. And you will surely be standing alone in the culture that we are a part of. 
But we need to resolve in our hearts and minds that we believe in the biblical portrait of marriage. One man, one woman, a covenant that is kept until death do you part. But you also need to understand that the voices that uphold the biblical portrait of marriage are being radically opposed by a totally different worldview. Now, we know the worldview and culture opposes, for the most part, the biblical portrait of marriage. But I want to read a few sentences to you of someone who claims to be a Christian. This should shock you and horrify you. He says this, I think it is important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others have witnessed to, which tell us to claim our own sexual orientation is in fact to accept the way in which God has created us. Do you hear what this writer is saying? Is we are called, he says, to cast aside sola scriptura. You cast aside sola scriptura and the basis of your authority is me, is my personal experience. And so it is crucial that we recognize and affirm the biblical portrait of marriage. Principle number two, I want to encourage you to, to model the gospel. That is, we resolve to enter the marketplace with truth and grace. And I, I, won't have, I won't call for a show of hands, but I think if I were to ask you to raise your hands, if I said, how many of you think the church has failed miserably in this respect? My suspicion would be 100% of you would raise your hands. Because I think we have failed miserably, and I think I have failed miserably. And so we model the gospel by entering the marketplace, sometimes a hostile marketplace, with truth and grace. How do we do it? We do it by reaching out to the homosexual community. We care for homosexual sinners in the same way that we care for heterosexual sinners. You remember the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a list of sins that keep someone out of heaven. And there's a whole list of them right smack dab in the middle is the sin of homosexuality. And so homosexuality is not worse than your other garden variety of sins. These are all sins that, that grieve a holy God. And so we reach out to homosexual sinners the same way we reach heterosexual sinners. Directly decisively and lovingly remembering that every person whether he or she is a homosexual or a heterosexual is an image bearer of god created with worth value and dignity this is what god has been convicting me of that those homosexuals out there they are image bearers they are created in the image of god they have dignity and great worth before a holy God and we are to treat them as such and so loving our neighbors regardless of whatever disagreements arise as a result of conflicting beliefs about marriage is paramount we live respectfully and civilly alongside those people who disagree with us for the common good we don't compromise our standards we don't compromise our beliefs we don't compromise scripture but we live in peace 
with people so far as we are able. And then we call homosexuals to repentance in the same way that we call heterosexual sinners to repentance. And my conviction is this. In many cases, the homosexual sinner and the heterosexual sinner will shake an angry fist and raise it in your face. That will happen. But others will trust Jesus and be saved. There is a professor at Moody Bible Institute who is a former homosexual. I read his book a few months ago and was was literally blown away at the work of grace that God did in his life as his parents would pray day and night for their son that he would repent of the sin of homosexuality. One day God God got a hold of this young man and he repented and he believed in the gospel. He cast all his hope and future exclusively on the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's a professor at Moody Bible Institute. Praise the Lord for that, for that work of grace in his life. And so every sexual sinner, homosexual and heterosexual alike, must turn his or her attention to the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the third and final principle. May I encourage you, in light of all that's happening in our culture, is to marvel in a sovereign God. See, marveling in a sovereign God involves maintaining an eternal perspective. And at this point, I'll be very candid with you. I'm preaching to myself because I turn on the news and I begin to shake my head and say, whoa, is me. This is not looking good. How could anyone believe in post-millennialism? Things are not getting better. Things are getting worse and worse by the day. Our culture, which is largely dominated by corrupt passions, has not taken God by surprise. Jesus is still on the throne. And the psalmist acknowledges God's sovereign control over all things, even in a world that is drowning in wickedness. Listen to what he says in Psalm 11. He says, if the foundations are destroyed, you stop right there and think, wow. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds and the upright will behold his face. And so we marvel in a sovereign God. It is in the midst of such a climate that we are called to serve God and live our Christian lives faithfully. It is in the midst of such a climate that we are called to marvel in this sovereign God. I'll never forget it. The day of the Supreme Court decision that I mentioned previously. It was two days, only two days after that decision. The decision that legalized same-sex marriage in America. John MacArthur wrote a letter to the alumni of the Master's Seminary. And one section of the letter stands out. Here's what Dr. MacArthur says. He says, marriage is not the ultimate battleground. 
And our enemies are not the men and women who seek to destroy it. The battleground is the gospel. Be careful not to replace patience, love, and prayer with bitterness, hatred, and politics. End quote. In a book that I recommend to young people all the time, it's a book my daughter read when she was, I believe, a senior in high school. Pastor Joe Thorne, and this would be worth writing down, mom and dad, for graduation gifts or just a gift that you'll buy your son or daughter this week. Joe Thorne, the name of the book is Note to Self. Have you ever done, done that? Well, note to self. Don't forget to buy groceries. Don't forget to take the trash out. And so this little book, little paperback book, is a collection of notes that you might put on the back of a Starbucks napkin. Little reminders. Here's one of the notes that Pastor Thorne encourages us with. He said, it is important that you meditate on the gospel. You must learn, relearn, and remember your Savior's love and sacrifice for the wicked, rebellious, black-hearted people for people like you. And when you see the Holy One's sacrificial love for you, you not only see what love looks like, but you find strength and power to love like Him. That's exactly what I'm encouraging us to do today. To remember the gospel, to rejoice in the gospel. And when you, as Jerry Bridges used to say, preach the gospel to yourself, when you look at that homosexual sinner, when you look at that heterosexual sinner, you will say something like this. You remember John Newton said, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And so our task then is to, to lovingly and firmly engage with people in this post-Christian age. May we play an important part in strengthening the foundations of an age in which truth is discounted and discarded and biblical authority is denied. May we at Christ Fellowship stand faithfully in an age which biblical standards are mocked and maligned on a daily basis. And may we love the Savior. And may our love for the Savior propel us into the future by his grace and for his glory. I have one final slide I want you to think about and meditate on. And I want you to recognize that there are only two paths. For every person here in this sanctuary, there are only two paths. First, there is the path of autonomy. And second, there is the path of authority. The path of autonomy and the path of authority. Let's look at that together. When we think about these two paths and we consider the path of autonomy, you need to remember if you choose to do it your way, if you choose to discard the word of God and rely on yourself and your feelings and your predispositions and your personal worldview, the Bible is very clear about that. There will be judgment to come. But then you think about the other side is you embrace authority. You embrace sola scriptura, that the word of God is our highest authority. And you say, 
But pastor, I don't know about verses 26 and 27. That's a hard pill to swallow. May I say as your pastor that you need to swallow it. We must swallow it. And as we walk down the path of authority, here's what we learn from the pages of the Old Testament and the New, is we will be a people of blessing. That the blessing of God will be on our lives, not because we are good people, but because we are sinners saved by grace. And so we recall the, the wonders of the gospel that God sent Jesus to die in our place. That he lived the life that he calls us to live and we failed. We didn't live that life and we need the merits of another. Luther said it like this. He said, Jesus and what he did on the cross, he referred to it as alien righteousness. He was just way before his time, way before Star Wars and science fiction. Alien righteousness. We need the alien righteousness of Jesus where we trust in what he accomplished on the cross. He bore the wrath in our place. And the word of God says, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, with the heaviness of this message uh, really weighing down on us, I I pray that we would uh, focus in now on the two paths, the path of autonomy and the path of authority. My prayer is that every person that leaves Christ Fellowship today would be a people who are committed to the path of authority, who are committed to uh, obeying sacred scripture, who are committed to living faithful lives all for the glory of God. And for those who are listening this morning who find themselves in the category of being on the path of autonomy, may you do a work of grace in their heart. May you, even in this, this moment before we sing these songs, may you challenge them, Holy Spirit. May you convict them. May you cause them to see that the way that they are living their life is out of step with the word of God. May they repent. May they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who died and gave himself for every person who would ever believe, covering our sins, past, present, and future. In Jesus' name, amen.